Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That kind of makes sense, doesn't it? That resonates as true. It says the eye is the lamp of the body, but if your eye is healthy, your whole body can be full of light. But if your eye is unhealthy, what the heck does that mean? When I read it, I think that it's calling us to an awareness of what we see and desire. If our desires take us off track, we can get off track. We can go different directions based on what our desires are. It's a fabulous passage of Jesus, this passage in the Sermon on the Mount, but it is hard to handle. Can, can I ask, is there anybody who doesn't worry about a little bit about tomorrow? You, we we kind of worry about tomorrow. I mean, that's why we have retirement accounts and we did all kinds of preparation and for different things. Um, if I ask you that the week before a hurricane was coming, would you say you're worrying about tomorrow? Right, so there are clearly parts of our life where we worry about tomorrow. And the question is, what is God trying to get us to do? What is, what is the message God's... Because clearly God understands what we're going through. There's a sense in which it's this simple. Don't worry, God has this. And then as soon as we leave the church, we grab a hold of the steering wheel and we think, now I've got this. That old adage was, um, God is my co-pilot, right? Bumper stickers through the 80s. And the response from some folks was, no, 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 no. Scoot over. Let God be the pilot. Give God the steering wheel. We're willing to have God on board, but please don't let us just trust God's driving skills. Last week, we started a sermon series I entitled On Purpose, and I, hopefully it's a reminder that the, the church has got a mission, that we're aiming towards something, that the kinds of things we do with our time and our talents and our resources, our treasure, aims us towards a purpose that's a higher purpose than just a social club that gets together. This morning, I want to focus on a theme of Scripture that runs counter to the narrative that we human beings often experience. It's hard for us to get outside this particular narrative. It's a way of thinking that becomes so second nature to us, it's hard for us to even see it. So I want to call it out this morning. But I think that's also why Scripture deals with this particular theme over and over and over and over, because we human beings need to be reminded. I think at times it's kind of like a fish in a tank not being aware that they've got water around them because that's their normal environment. Our normal environment is to live with this sense of scarcity in the world. Sometimes it's manufactured scarcity, and sometimes there's actual scarcity, and it kind of changes the way we look at. Don't worry about tomorrow. There is this myth of scarcity that we'll never, ever have enough because there's just not enough in the world for us, and therefore we have to fight with each other in order to survive just to have our basic needs we have to take from others. 
But I also want to say that I think there's this dance that the myth of scarcity has with our sense of desire, that we want more and more than we have. And there's this sense that desire allows us to almost feel like we're making progress and fulfilling this longing that we have for God. We often blur the line between what we need and what we want. Can I get an amen? Do you ever, does anybody around you ever blur the line between want and need? I mean, when we think about it, we, we jump over that line a long ways, fairly quickly. I mean, we need clean water. We want it delivered to our house clean, right? We need it to be able to drink clean water. But the way we've designed our houses, we use clean water to flush our toilets, right? Do we need Drinkable water in our toilets? Yes, for the sake of my dog, we need drinkable. Sometimes I think about it, it feels real clear to me when I think about the way houses are these days because houses used to be smaller. Um, people used to cook in their kitchens. Do you cook in your kitchens? 16 people. No, I'm just teasing. But it turns out we want gourmet kitchens and then really nice restaurants nearby. We want. What's the minimum amount of uh, toilets you have to have or bathrooms you have to have in your house? I know folks that are single that need to have at least two. And, and there are times when I'm not going to disagree with them, to be quite honest. I want to look at the biblical witness to see what it is that God keeps trying to get through to us, to reframe our desires. It's not just about closets and storage units and square footage and kitchens. We say... In God we trust, and then we save as much money as possible. So in reality, it's fair to say we trust in saving stuff and having money. In Genesis, the first book of the Hebrew Scriptures, we begin with God creating all things. Everything that exists comes from God. And Scripture tells us that God calls them good, calls us, human beings, very good. The second story of creation, we live in paradise, the Garden of Eden. Remember that story? We learned that one when we were very young. Everything we need is provided by God. Everything we need is provided by God. How does that work out for us? God walks with us, life is bliss, God is close to us, and yet we human beings seem to want more, more than what we need. And so we wanted something and we took what we wanted, and out of paradise we get kicked. 
Soon after that, the story includes offering gifts to God for what God has provided. One provides the spoils of farming and one the spoils of ranching. And how does that go? We compare the difference between God's response, and even though God is grateful with either of those two responses, we take it out on each other when we feel slighted, and sometimes that means we are unjust. I want to fast forward to the end of Genesis. We remember the story of Joseph gets sold into slavery by his family. This is yes, this is no, you are awake. All right, we remember some of Joseph. After Joseph gets sold into slavery, he ends up in Egypt and something happens. He, I think he's in jail, right? And, he, and uh, Pharaoh is trying to figure out what a particular dream means. And he asks all his folks and finally Joseph is asked to interpret this dream. And it, is it, does anybody remember the elements of the dream? What were the elements of the dream? Seven fat cows and seven really skinny cows, and, and it, Joseph could interpret it and said there's going to be seven years of blessing and bounty, and then there's going to be seven years of famine. So Pharaoh puts Joseph in charge of the preparation so that they can get through the seven lean years by prep, preparing through the seven good years. God uses Joseph. In the end, Egypt is one of the few places that actually has resources near the end of this famine. And so Joseph's family that sold him into slavery ends up coming into town and saying, can we have some, we'll give you anything, can we have some food? Joseph plays a little bit of trickery, is not real nice, I'm skipping that part. But because of God using Joseph, Egypt survives and becomes a blessing, and the ch children of Israel, Joseph's family, comes and migrates to Egypt. God provides. Now, I want to fast forward just a little bit, and near the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus, the famine is long past. We've got a different pharaoh in charge, but this pharaoh sees that the immigrants, this family, these children of Israel, have this beautiful piece of land that's producing all kinds of amazing crops, and they are thriving and doing very, very well. And this particular pharaoh doesn't remember that the reason they have this land is because Joseph saved Egypt. But the Pharaoh wants more. The Pharaoh wants all he can get. So he exercises his great power and begins taking and killing so that he can have more. Egypt has this great wealth and great power, but for this particular Pharaoh, fear and greed take over. And fear and greed become the dominating force in this moment. There's plenty for everyone, but fear and greed take over. Moses is born into that moment in history. And Mo Moses survives, how? Because baby in basket on Nile, 
right? Because what's going on is firstborn male children are being, or the Hebrews are being killed off. The babies are being killed in birth. For years, that same abuse of power is leveled against the immigrant Hebrews. Then Moses becomes an adult, and God sends Moses back to Egypt to set the children of Israel free. So far, so good. Remember all that storyline, abundance and scarcity, and how that changes the plot. Not too many days later, after Israel is free and in the wilderness, what do they do? They long for the provisions of Egypt. And they say, oh, send us back. At least there we could, right? It doesn't take but a few minutes for us to move straight from, okay, things are good, to, oh, but I could have more. God keeps providing, and we keep wanting more. For 40 years in the desert, God provides. Remember this story? They collect every day of the week, but on Sunday, or on the Sabbath, on Saturday, they collect manna so they can eat. And magically, it doesn't, uh, if they collect too much, it spoils, except on Friday, if they collect it, it lasts an extra day so they can go through the Sabbath. Our, it, it boggles my mind to think through the God provides manna and water for hundreds of thousands of people in the desert. God provides. Our history as humans is filled with economic ups and downs. These ups and downs sometimes shape us. In lean times, we learn certain lessons, and in golden times, we sometimes seek excess. And sometimes our excess and desire for more brings on another cycle of lean. Some of you are really close to remembering your parents and how they were affected by the Depression. It shaped the way those folks do certain things, save certain things, uh, desire things, or spend very, very carefully. Am I right? Are there parts of your financial history that have shaped the way you now sometimes hold on real tight for fear that the bad days or the lean days are coming? No? No? I can tell you that folks who have been homeless have a different perspective on life. They work really hard to make sure they're doing things without too much excess because they know they want to make sure they have a place to lay their head. All right, so we're skipping ahead and we're listening to Jesus, and Jesus says, don't worry. Don't worry about your clothing to folks who have no closet." The houses that we found in Israel have no closets. Uh, Tony said to me earlier, he says, you know, reading this particular scripture, I probably shouldn't have worn um, a suit. I probably should have worn <laughs> jeans and a T-shirt. Yeah, this is a, this is a very interesting um, scripture to speak to families who live in this community because many of the folks who will hear this today have a home here and a home there. 
We've traveled the world. We've seen and done all kinds of things. Some folks spend more time on cruises than they come to church. And Jesus says, don't worry about what to wear, what to drink, what to eat. Don't be afraid. Live in the enoughness. Don't be anxious. And we still worry. Anybody? There's this beautiful story in Scripture about feeding the 5,000, and we go, ooh, a great, a miracle. But I think Jesus was trying to make a different point. It wasn't, ooh, I can do miracles, because Jesus did all kinds of miracles, but the feeding of the 5,000, it's one of the few stories we have that's in all four Gospels, which speaks to something about its meaning, its value, and its truthfulness. And there's a feeding of the 4,000. Just don't get those two confused. How can you not get those two confused? The Sermon on the Mount is talked about like it's in the same general vicinity as the feeding of the 5,000. Like this is how it happens is in this particular part of Galilee. So we have end up with plenty to go around, 5,000 men and anybody else that's traveling with them, women and children. Lots and lots of people, and all of a sudden we have extra. How many do? How many baskets do we have left over? I heard twelve. I heard seven. It depends on which version you read. Both of those are true. Matthew in the feeding of the five thousand ends up with twelve baskets left over, and uh, Matthew in the feeding of the four thousand ends up with seven left over, but. So let me just throw in the fact that uh, 12 kind of means something in Hebrew Scriptures. The 12 tribes, 12 disciples, all that, right? So 12 is a, this is who we are, an identity thing. And the seven, that number means perfect. The perfect amount was left over. Um, There are that many days in the week. plenty to go around, and we have leftovers when we leave it to God. A few loaves of bread and a few fish. How many of you would have panicked? Yeah, that southern hospitality is in deep trouble. Southern hospitality means there better be stuff left over. We're sending home leftovers with folks. So we've got to hear God's voice speaking into our world and into our life about our, our perceived scarcity and our desire to want more. I, I need more so that I don't run out. But I think there are times, not every time that there's scarcity, but there are times when greed and fear of scarcity are programmed into us that it's a lie that's given to us in part to allow for folks to maximize profits. Now, I'm going to use a couple of examples fairly quickly, and none of these are going to fit all of us, and some of these might not fit you at all. But they show the point that sometimes we are pulled by scarcity-driven greed, and sometimes we humans are unjust to others so that we can have more than we need. 
The depression, in my mind, is a pretty good example of actual scarcity, but it was brought on by greed. Disney has attended, for, for, I don't know, the last 20 or 30 years, made sure that they brought out of their vault Disney films for a very short period of time. So there was a perceived sense of scarcity. They didn't have to do that. They chose to do that. Supply and demand sometimes leads to a sense of manufactured scarcity in order to maximize profit. I think OPEC did a really good job of making oil scarce in the 70s so they could maximize profits. Am I right? I mean, I'm, I'm not against reasonable profit. I want folks to stay in business if they're doing things well, being just. But some, there are some drug price schemes that have gone on in the last 10 years that have made me want to, I don't know, close down business as we know it. It's been so ridiculous. We lie to the public about addiction so we can continue to make more and more money because we need that second billion dollars while some folks go hungry. Food supply gets manipulated. Early humans, they migrated to where human where there were there was food we have farmer subsidies did you know that the avocado industry is like run now in mexico by the drug cartels it's a great little business to make it look like things are fine and and do you know the story about tulips There was a time in the world when they were selling tulips and the price of tulips went up so fast because they knew that no matter what they paid for it, somebody else was going to buy it for more. There was this perceived scarcity, this market manipulation that allowed folks to go crazy. And there was a tulip bubble and a tulip burst. I'm not making this up. You have to look this up. I don't understand Bitcoin enough to know whether that's something what we're making into scarcity and manipulating markets, but I know that we have the same amount of minutes every day, the same amount of minutes every year, and some of it has to do with choices and priorities and doing things with a different kind of purpose. I do think that we can prepare for some scarcity, that we plan ahead. We budget. We have an emergency fund so that when there are moments of scarcity or greater need that we have resources to do that. And when it comes time for hurricane season, I've lived in Florida long enough to know that I need to have certain supplies on hand. And I keep them on hand until the end of the hurricane season, at which point in time we eat or drink or pour the gas into the gas tank so, that, so we prepare. Because hurricanes bring scarcity, don't they? Right now in the world, there's a scarcity for face masks related to viruses. And we're buying them in the United States when the need, and they can't get enough in China because they can't make them fast enough for the whole world to have their share. The Scripture keeps telling us about God's abundance, to let go of fear and hoarding. And Pharaoh reminds everybody about scarcity. When we have biblical lenses of God's abundance, it's got to push back at our upside-down worldview. And I think if we can see each other 
through a lens of abundance, we can be more just and fair with our brothers and sisters in town, in the state, in the United States, and in the world. But when you hoard and limit supply so you can maximize profit, it doesn't help folks. I know it feels almost instinctual, this fear of not having enough. But either we seek to let God speak to us through the Bible or we don't. And if we do want to take the Bible seriously, then here God reminds us to have a mindset of God's abundance. I'm going to confess to you, this is not easy for me either. I've got that same programming that says save and do this and do this and do this and prepare. But Scripture keeps telling me not to worry. God is speaking deep into our way of thinking and calling us to push against the narrative of the world that there isn't enough, and so you need to hoard so you can think that you'll have enough for tomorrow. I want you this week to be on the lookout for moments that make you feel that sense of fear or anxiety about scarcity and see where it is. Is it true? I mean, Does scarcity drive us to buy more clothes? I don't know. Where is it that you experience God's abundance, and where do you experience the world's desire for scarcity? And I hope that you will find ways inside yourself to challenge the notion of scarcity. I think this is one of the ways the Bible speaks to us about money and human nature. And I think we've got to find a way to listen to this. And I don't think it's easy. But I think it's important. Let us pray. Oh, gracious God, speak to us your word of hope and love, even when we seem to be caught up by fear, desire. Remind us that Every day we awake, we have enough smiles to give away and enough hugs to give away and enough love to share that the next day we'll still have an unlimited supply. And let us lean into your abundance and tackle the notions of scarcity in our life. We have listened to your word and we have been a bit defensive and so speak to us in our defensiveness. Where is it in us that is captured by this sense of scarcity? We seek to find your balance, your dream for our lives. Let your kingdom come in our life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.